right, here we go. One, two, three, four. Then we ended together, I think. Well, that was a. That's not whoever finished first won. That's, right. that's, that's the game I was playing. Yeah, I did not win in that case, though. Oh no, we might have lost Jade. Well, that was Will Coxon number four, everybody, because it's his birthday, and we're recording. Well, we're recording on November seventh. We're releasing November twenty sixth. And yeah, it happens to be Wilcoxon's birthday today in history. So this is episode 261 of Percussion Podcast. I'm Casey Cangelosi, and with me as usual, we got some of the regulars. Ben Charles, how's it going? Good, well, how are you, Casey? How's that Caprice going, buddy? Caprice? Oh, I played it in studio class uh, a week ago. It went well. Did you yeah. get the performance rights from the composer and publisher I, I, to do that? I did, yeah. <laughs> I did not. <laughs> I like that. I like that's that. uh, if anyone wondering what we're talking about, that's Casey's piece Caprice for xylophone and piccolo, and it's it's really fun, and it's reminding oh. me how, how difficult the xylophone is. Oh, cool! Thanks, buddy. And uh, Carly Vigna is also here. Hey, Carly. Yeah. Hey, Casey. How's it going? Just fine. That was some good Wilcoxon number four over there. Do you use Wilcox for your students? You know, yeah, I do some. I I I tend to lean towards Pratt though. That's a whole other thing. I, I do more Pratt. I think I probably I probably do more Pratt because it appears places, but I really enjoy something we do like be, like between lessons. I'm going over with one student. And I'll kind of open the door so that the next student knows, hey, we're ready. Just come on in. And of course, this is prior to COVID. We don't get to have this much fun anymore. But my next student will come in. I'll say, hey, let's sight read some, some Pratt or some Wilcox. And I like the Wilcoxes because they're so short. And oh, they're yeah. always super symmetrical and they're easier to play games with. So it's very easy to like, okay, let's play this Wilcoxon. I'm just going to start in the second bar. You start in the first bar. This other person start in the third bar. So you can like easily make a cannon out of them. And then it's really fun when you play with pads like we were just doing. So, of course, you can hear each other talking. It's really fun to make a game where like, okay, we're going to trade every two bars but while you're playing, you have to call on the next person. So like I'll be playing the first two bars. And while I'm playing that, I have to call out, you know, Manny, you're going next. And then Manny has to pick it up. So like you have to execute saying it in time and then you have to execute picking it up. And yeah, we just we think that's really fun. And then I we were we were actually so in sync that we crashed uh, Jade's Zoom. <laughs> it was that good. It was that good. It was that in the pocket. <laughs> Yeah. No, you know what else? What else is good in the Wilcox? And I like the stuff in the beginning in the Rudimental Swing Solos book that were like all the variations on the different rudiments. That stuff is super cool. Yeah, for sure, for sure, for sure. Carly, did you want to tell us anything about Wilcoxon since it's the news for today? I don't. Yeah, this saying. is like this is like the most relevant news that we've had in weeks. I think, um, as Casey said, Charlie Wilcoxon was born in Ohio. Uh, the town is Coshocton which I've never heard of. Anybody ever hear of Coshocton, Ohio? 
Yeah, I'm not sure about that one. Um, on November 26, 1894, hard to believe it was that long ago. Um, and the story about Wilcoxon is that he loved drumming from a very, very early age, and he was playing on homemade drums, whatever he had on hand. Um, he delivered newspapers, delivered did deliveries for a furniture store, and also did farm work to pay for it, to be able to buy his first drum set. And at the age of eight, he started playing in a local movie house. So imagine that. Um, little eight-year-old playing and he started teaching he had his first student when he was 12 years old and at 14 he started playing um, a vaudeville show called Spring Maid um, and then he ended up playing at the palace in Cleveland Ohio from 1922 to 1933 so after all that he opened a drum shop in a studio where he taught a lot of lessons and also made custom drumsticks um, and his teaching inspired so many of the books that he wrote, which, you know, they're really popular. All-American Drummer, The Modern Rudimental Swing Solos, uh, Wrist and Finger Control, Drummer on Parade, and a couple others. The Junior Drummer, Rolling in Rhythm. There's one called Drumming Plus Humming a Tune. I don't know that one, actually. And then he wrote, you know, individual solos, too. Anybody know this one, Drumming Plus Humming a Tune? No. I'm very curious about it. I, I just read about it. I haven't, haven't had time to look it up, but... I wonder um, if the drummer has to hum a tune. I wonder if the tunes are there and we're supposed to whistle or something. I can't imagine. <laughs> so anyway, it's it's cool. uh, our release date, November 26th, is Charlie Wilcoxon's birthday. So happy birthday. Awesome. Yeah, thanks a lot, Carly. Well, you know, it's a supporters roundtable, so we're here again for the second ever roundtable. And back again, Jade Hales is here. How's it going, Jade? Great. Glad to be back. You, you're back, your shelves behind you and the brick looks exactly like my old office. Like oh, yeah. I, thought, I thought you were in my old office. <laughs> no, when still not here. Yeah. Manny Trevino's here. Hey, hey, how's it going everybody? How you doing, Manny? Doing all right, doing all right. Glad, glad to be here with you, you fine people. Cool, yeah, good to have you. And Jorge Mujica's here. Hey, Jorge. Yo, what's up? How's it going, guys? <laughs> good, good to see you. And we have a new roundtabler. It's uh, back on the show for his second appearance. He was here. Uh, it was the PAS Ed Committee, I believe. And it's Christopher Dandelis. Hey, Chris, how's it going? Hey, doing well. How about you guys? Very good, very good. Chris, <clears throat> you're the your music faculty at. It's called. I wrote it down. It's. Uh, is it pronounced Wabanese Valley High? School? Uh, Wabanzi Valley. <clears throat> Wabanzi Valley. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm a, a music teacher. I, uh, I teach band and a lot of percussion. Uh, we, I also teach a lot of the brass players as well. So cool. we have a nice little setup where we've got three band directors kind of tag teaming everything. Awesome. And are you all tag teaming a lot during COVID? Is it? Uh, yeah, you know, that's actually been very isolating. So um, I work together a lot with uh, the other full-time colleague I have and uh, we, uh, we're really blessed that we have this situation where we can pull kids out of each other's bands and work with them in small groups. Um, very much like how a lot of middle schools do it. Yeah. Uh, so we're able to continue that through high school. And it, it's not quite private lessons, but we can really kind of identify and work with kids on some really individual stuff. Yep, yep. Do you get to do some in person? I see you've got your setup. We uh, we have not been in person at all this year, except for a little bit for marching band. Um, and uh, yeah, it's Illinois is not looking too good right now, so it might be a while. 
So also also in the news today, I should just add, of course, yeah, COVID is still what it is and seems to be getting uh, getting worse all the time and it's getting colder. So they say it's going to get worse. But also we just found out Joe Biden is is the president elect. He just got past 270. So there's a lot of buzz around that. And I think generally our listeners go to that side. I think most of us go on that side. But um, if you don't, if you're upset about it, you know, we're, we're sorry to hear that, but we're still glad to have you have you with us and we're still your buddy. And, you know, just I know everyone says this and it's cheesy, but we are all in this together. And yeah, yeah, yeah just just hang in there. And I'm, I'm sorry if you're sad. So, uh, gosh, that's what's happening today. And uh, Ben, yeah, I think you've gonna you're going to lead this one for us. Yeah, so uh, Casey found an article talking about MOOCs, uh, which stands for Massive Online Open Courses. And the couple of articles that Casey found were really focused specifically on copyright issues with those. Um, so, um, and I'll let Casey kind of talk more about the copyright stuff, but I was actually unfamiliar with what these were. Um, so I wanted to just sort of share my findings as to what they were in the first place. So basically, this is somewhere between like, you know, the uh, service masterclass where you can sign up and take cooking classes from Gordon Ramsay. It's somewhere between that and online college where you can do these courses. Uh, and many of them, if you complete the course, you can get some sort of certificate. It's obviously not a college diploma, but now there's talk of maybe turning some of these into things for college credit. There was actually a vote on this in California a few years ago, and the University of California system sharply opposed it. They thought it would basically cheapen education to where you were um, selling out undergraduate courses to the to the lowest bidder, or excuse me, to the highest bidder. Um, so, um, and I just did a little more research on this and found that the average completion rate of these courses is actually approximately 15%, and in some cases, possibly as low as 3%. So just to give you an example, there was a bioelectricity course in 2012 offered by Duke University. It had 12,725 students enroll in it. Only 7,761 ever watched a single video. Only 3,658 ever even attempted a quiz and only 345 attempted the final. And in the end, only 313 actually passed the class. So that's, you know, 313 out of 12,000 is not that many. So there's, you know, debates about the efficacy of these classes, but it is true that they can provide better access to higher education, they can reduce the financial barriers to education, and they can offer a more flexible schedule. Some of the issues, especially related to music courses, come from copyright issues, where obviously if you're playing a musical example from a recording, uh, if I were to walk into my music appreciation class that I teach and play something that I had the, the rights to just for personal listening, for a class of 15 people, it would probably be fine. But if all of a sudden I'm broadcasting it online to 10,000 people, we get into some problems. And so I just wanted to review and share a few uh, different uh, MOOCs, some of which I was somewhat familiar with, but mostly I was not. So one of the first big name ones is this one right here called Khan Academy. Oh, and yeah. Khan Academy is mostly focused on like uh, primary and secondary education, not, not college education. You can see their course offerings here. We've got like math, pre-K to eighth grade, high school and college math, you know, a little bit of AP stuff here. But uh, and there's there's very little, I think I saw somewhere in here, there was some sort of music offering, but this is obviously aimed at like 
grade school kids. Um, but getting onto the music side of things, I actually, a while back, I started getting these Facebook ads for something called Tone Bass Piano. And I, I'm not sure if this actually qualifies as an MOOC. Uh, it seems somewhere more like a subscription service, kind of like Masterclass, but you can see it's, there's all sorts of, this is for pianists, there's all sorts of piano repertoire on here. And uh, I was very fascinated to find that one of their big artists is Leon Fleischer, who of course recently passed away. And I'm assuming this was all right before he passed away that he got involved in this uh, service. And you can see masterclasses with Beethoven and Brahms. And then I was really, I thought it was really cool on their uh, artist roster page here, uh, meet your new instructors. I could see that uh, in addition to the greats like Leon Fleischer and Garrett Olson, was my grad school roommate, Asiya Karafanova. So hello, Asiya, if you're That's watching cool. this. Really, really cool. Um, on the more percussion side of things, this is one of the ones that, that comes up a lot, is uh, this site, Coursera. And I had known that Gary Burton was involved at the end of his career in Berkeley and getting the sort of Berkeley online college of music stuff up. Uh, and so this is the course taught by Gary Burton. It's a jazz improvisation course. You can enroll for free. Obviously, if you're listening, this is too late now because it starts November 7th. Um, so, but it's a free course on jazz improvisation from Gary Burton. Um, let me pull my notes back up here. Uh, it's approximately 14 hours to complete that course. It's a five week course. And then uh, also another thing I want to mention uh, is our friend Norm Weinberg, who we've had on the podcast before in his company, VAP Media has these wonderful courses. So this is probably a course that a lot of people took in grad school, Percussion History and Literature, created by Dr. Norman Weinberg. It's a 15-week course, and it includes, uh, let's see here, essentials, instrument histories, orchestral literature, chamber literature, percussion ensemble literature, and solo literature. And then there's also a marimba and xylophone history course created by David Harvey. And then, of course, many of our familiar, uh, excuse me, many of us are familiar with this course, the repertoire created by Will James. So, yeah, I was not at all familiar with the term MOOC, but I, I was pretty pleased to find out that it seems like a, a cool thing. I, in my opinion, it's not a substitute for traditional college. And one of the most difficult things seems to be the evaluation in these courses, whereas in college you would have a test and a professor grades your test. And these, it seems like it's a lot of peer evaluation because obviously if you have 10,000 people taking a free course, the instructor can't grade everyone's papers. Um, so it seems like it's, there's a lot of peer evaluation going on. I will say that for someone that's out of college and working in the field like everyone in this room, if you wanted to brush up on your jazz improvisation, that Gary Burton thing's probably a fantastic way to do it. So um, has, anyone has anyone ever done one of these or is anyone more familiar with these than it sounds like Casey and I were? Well, I've, I've done um, a master class before just because I was interested in, in something, but there was no evaluation or credit at the end. But it, so you know, just, it's just similar. to be clear, you're, you're talking about that actual service. Yeah, the, the, the series master class, yeah. <laughs> what did you do yourself? Was it a music one or just? It was a music one. I think it was uh, Hans Zimmer, maybe. And I looked at one of the other ones, too, the, one of the music production ones. And so uh, there's obviously with online things, there's different formats. The the one that you did, was it, uh, it seems like a lot of these are like a series of videos that you watch. Was that your experience? <clears throat> yeah, so there was a, a series of videos and then there was a workbook that came with it where you could, there were little projects you could do along the way and you could upload some of your projects. There's kind of like a shared hub where you can uh, upload some of your projects and on occasion the, you know, the the teacher for the course might grab some examples and, and 
kind of demonstrate some things that you know he or she noticed about them. I Very poked cool. around on on yeah. Thanks so much, Ben, uh, I, for the like thorough explanation of just what they are. I didn't know a lot about them until I bumped into this, but I poked around on Facebook just to ask people if anyone had taken them, and it sounds like. I mean, very much like we're saying, there's a ton of stuff going online, but they're not these specific, massive, open online courses like these MOOCs are. And what I don't understand is why why are universities going through Coursera or edX or what was the other one, Udacity? There's a, there's a bunch of these services trying to offer offer these courses and I just kind of wonder like, well, why aren't universities just keeping like 100% of the money themselves and saying, hey, you can take this course, no credit. Um, you can get this little certificate and it costs, you know, $40. I, I guess this all originated because a professor, I forget where, but at a, at a very reputable, uh, uh, famous university said- uh, I think it was, uh, I think it was UC Berkeley. That uh, no, right. sorry, sorry, San Jose State, I think. Is that right? And, and Better it was, Stanford. It, yeah, it, it was, uh, I forget, computer science course or something. And, and they got, you know, 6,000 people signed up right away and very few people completed it. And they found if you just charge a little money, way more people complete the course. So, I, yeah, it's weird. Like, why why would the universities want to go through the service? But the, the article we're talking about is, is is questioning the copyright issues with this course. So if you Real quick, sorry to, sorry to interject, but if I could go back to your previous statement, I think a lot of it might have to do with dissemination of information. So, for example, every university uses something like Blackboard or, Blackboard or Canvas. We don't yeah. all make our own LMS to like put content out there. So I think it might have to do more with that than, than anything else, but sorry. Yeah, just like the infrastructure of delivery. Yeah. Yeah. But like, can you just do it on zoom? Uh, you know, like, like I, and maybe it's just the capacity. Like I don't think zoom is a platform that can handle 6,000 people. So maybe they've got something that can handle 6,000 people at once. And, and yeah, sure. That would, that would make sense. That would do it. But, but um, you know, when you're teaching a course at, at you know public university, private institutions vary, but they're generally nonprofit. They are not not for profit. So you know, there's this thing called fair use, and you think, well, if I'm going to play this recording of Jade Hales playing a piece, and I want to use it as an example, and he has a copywritten and published, la 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 la, then. Okay, like under fair use, it's not for profit and it's for education. And by the way, fair use is really muddy. I know I've said it on this show before. My colleague uh, Joe T Joe Taylor, he has said he does our one of our music industry professors here, and he said that yeah, fair use just just don't assume it's going to work. <laughs> it's like it might work, but there's kind of two excuses we have, and that's education and nonprofit. And these massive online courses are for profit, right? Like Coursera is a company they're trying to like make make money by delivering the service. So the conclusion is that it's not covered. Like, like fair use is not going to back some, up these things. Some are nonprofits. Khan Academy, for example, is actually a nonprofit. Okay, cool, cool. I did not know that. But so for the for the ones that are for profit, this this is an issue. So and and also they don't have the same certification as a university, so there's that issue as well. And anyway, fair use, I guess, is something they don't really want to roll the dice on. But I don't know if you all remember forever ago I reported on how Spotify pays its artists 
And it's kind of interesting, like, well, if I stream one track, that's like one, one listener, one track. But to use the example they used, if you run a gym and you're streaming a Spotify list, well, lots and lots of people are listening to that one track as not, and it's no longer a one-to-one correspondence. So it's like impossible to like try to pay out fairly the, the weight that that one track is is carrying. And Ben, you mentioned something about um, uh, what the California folks are saying, and I grabbed a little quote from the article. And let's see, it just says, quote from this article on New Music Box by Ellen McSweeney, and the article is called Music, MOOCs, and Copyright, Digital Dilemmas for Schools of Music. So, quote, MOOCs also raise concerns about attempting to replace or devalue real live university professors. California legislators recently rejected a controversial bill which would have outsourced some entry-level state university courses to for-profit companies like Coursera and Udacity. The bill was uniformly opposed by professors in the California state university system. I don't know. Ben and I have talked a lot. Anybody have any thoughts? Jade, you could have done your whole education online. Are you are you bummed out? Um, not really, because I mean, there's something to be said for like in person, of course. But I do think that services like MasterClass, Udemy, and like Skillshare are super valuable to learn skills that I wouldn't have had the opportunity to, or it might not be in my like coursework. Um, I know I learned how to use like the Adobe suite and now I can kind of sort of edit video and audio together. I didn't learn that in school. I had to like go out, find a service, find someone that's kind of qualified or you can just Google it. But I I found that the service was really helpful. Um, So I can see how these MOOCs could be helpful, but I don't think they're replacements. I, I saw just the offerings on Coursera and I looked in Arts and Humanities and man, I was I was about to sign up. There were some really cool looking courses. Like I was excited to think, whoa, like MoMA, the uh, Museum of Modern Art offers all these courses. There's a Beethoven piano uh, sonata lecture course. Just like, man, all this all this cool stuff. Uh, yeah, Chris, what do you what do you got? Oh, I was just, you know, I was just going to say, I, you know, maybe 10 years ago, I, I remember having assistant principals start talking about, we're not in the business of really delivering content anymore. We're really trying to get students to use it and and apply it. And I, I feel like this is a great way to get content or be exposed to something you didn't know a lot about before. It's kind of a general survey course, maybe, um, but there's no way to have a conversation with somebody or apply it or get new ideas outside of how your own brain is interpreting it. So, you know, I I don't think there's necessarily a place in college for it other than maybe some of the remedial stuff that maybe if you didn't come in strong in music theory, you go take the survey MOOC that, you know, is recommended and then you come in and start applying, you know, music theory or music history. Um, But I I think it's what we do with the content that's important and, and you just can't do that in a group of a thousand or 35,000 people. For sure. Yeah, actually a really close follow-up to what Chris just said. Uh, One of the things I read, one of the criticisms of this is that it said that studies have shown, and don't quote me on this because I'm, (laughs) but studies have shown that students actually don't remember course content generally. What they remember are the critical thinking skills that they used in that course. So if you think back to your high school 
government class that you took, you probably don't remember what happened exactly in government in the year 1817, but you do remember the analytical thinking skills that you use to apply, you know, things regarding 1817. So it's, it's really interesting you bring up that point. Tchaikovsky wrote that overture, 1817. Yeah, that's See, I remember. DMA. Has the cannons in it. Well, it, what came to mind when I'm thinking about all this is, um, I mean, online classes, I don't know how it is at all of your institutions, but it's pretty common for like gen ed classes for my students. Um, and I always ask them because I'm curious. I never took any online classes. It wasn't a thing when I was in school and um, for, for good reason, especially in music. But I asked them, like, do you like that? I mean, they, they basically they're working through the content on their own, you know, read this article, then. Um, maybe watch or listen to this video and then take this quiz and complete this assignment and participate in discussion and everything's just built into the course. You have to stay on track like week to week. Um, and I asked that like, do you, you know, do you retain what you learn? How do you like it? And most of my students like it. Every once in a while, somebody will say like, no, like I, I don't feel like I'm really getting it. I don't have the interaction with the teacher. I don't feel like I can get all my questions answered. But um, what do you all think about this? Have, have you taken like online university classes or anybody teach an online university class? Yeah, uh, it's funny you said that because I've just started my uh, second master's and it's an online version. And it's kind of at your own pace in the sense that during that week, you get to decide when you're going to go through all the content. But that what? week, I have to turn in some assignments and projects and whatnot. What, what, so it is time. What is the master's degree in? This is uh, in educational leadership. Um, so it's a, a teaching master's. My my first master's was in music. So, um, yeah, so it's it's interesting because I like that I can pace it on my own. I'm not committed to like every single Tuesday night going, you know, and doing, you know, going to a lecture necessarily, especially because I have random concerts all the time and things going on. So I get to pick during that week when I'm going to do the work, but it's also super hard because you feel isolated. Uh, I don't, I, we collaborate through Canvas, but it's it's not the same as having a conversation even on Zoom. Um, so there's a lot of really good stuff, but it, it is hard. And I can see why in a massive anonymous class, it would be a yeah. huge dropout rate. Well, and I hear kids in the background. So I imagine it's like, <laughs> well, <laughs> even if it's not ideal, if the alternative is to not have it at all, I mean, yeah, yeah of course this is the right idea, right? Yeah, I, I, it's starting to like the only thing I wonder, you know, we have like the great courses series that's been around forever and they're pretty expensive and you just watch them and there's no homework or whatever. But I kind of wonder like, yeah, if you don't get to interact with the professor, w why aren't they just recording their lectures and you just watch the same class over and yeah. over? You know? I, I do get a lot of feedback from the professor, too. So okay. um, that there is that I, I get the collaborative element. It's just asynchronous it's whenever they get around to grading it and sending it to me etc so uh -huh. but that is that is just online course like like there's not mm -hmm. that many people in the course right yeah that's see so that's what i'm wondering like i wonder yeah if you had three thousand people in a course you don't get to get that interaction why don't we just pre-record the lectures like great courses and have them you know watch them watch them and i actually I had a, a question I'd like to ask, especially to our, our public school educators here. And that is in the university setting, one of the things that they, they just like, excuse me, hammer into us is the idea of in-class interaction. That's what's so valuable about like literally going to college as in physically going somewhere. Uh, 
Uh, and so, for example, if someone asks a question, like you don't think about this, but if someone asks a question in class, the entire class hears the question and your answer, and that's not an interaction that you will ever get from pre-recording lectures or putting text online, something like that. Uh, and so they're always like encouraging us, like using discussion boards and things, which could work for a history class. But if you're teaching music in some sort of online setting, like I'm imagining like you guys were in the, the end of you know, last school year, how did you, I'll, I'll, you go as far as to use the word force, how did you force student interaction teaching music online during the online teaching? Um, I'll go, yes. Um, I mean, you can't, I wouldn't say force, you can't force it, but once in a while you would push it. Now, a lot of the times, I mean, at least once a week, still to this day, I'm like uh, just talking to myself, like teaching myself in my, I see myself in the recording and it's like, and I understand it, I, I get it. Like I know it's, these are hard times, so I'm not gonna force and push my kids to do it, but it is once in a while, I'll, I'll even say, I'll say what, I mean, uh, I guess I'm here once again, Mr. Mojica, just just talking to myself, just teasing myself, it's all cool. Like, all right, I will push like, can somebody give me a thumbs up or can you all type ready when you're ready on the TED? And, and then we have other days where they're freely talkative. And then those other days are like, you know, you know what? I don't think they feel like warming up or playing today. They just want to talk. And you know what? I'll take it. I'll take it whenever I can. And we'll just have a discussion about whatever they want to talk about to, to, to have that. So, I mean, it's really the last thing I want to do is force it. I mean, especially at a time like this. So. You're, you're happy to go with whatever spirit exactly. they bring into the, yes. the room. Yeah, but I mean, it is, it is hard. It is. It is, requires a lot of energy, especially when you're distracted. Or when I was at home teaching the kids, like it's difficult to be like. I mean, just one man show. Like, just you don't even know if they're paying attention, if they're getting it. We'll see. I mean, just hope for the best, right? I mean, <laughs> yeah, definitely, definitely. What what George said, like just getting a reaction. Hey, thumbs up, or give me a head nod. It's. I, I guess it's just that that aspect of not being in front of them and reading a body language that it does, it does go a long way. And there are some days, or I guess we're all kind of feeling it like, okay, we're back on Zoom. This is not the same, this isn't normal. And then there are other days like, all right, I'm gonna kill it today, let's do it. <laughs> it's, it's super, it's like a roller coaster. It's, it's always up and down, it's always strange, but just trying to just, at the end of the day, just encouraging the kids, encouraging, hey, I know, I know it's not the best, it's not, the, it's not ideal, but we still have to put some work in. <laughs> yeah, I, fi I find, uh, you know, what, what these guys are saying, the same thing is that when they, the kids get going, it's great and you can carry it a, a long way, but there's some days where it, you can try a gazillion different angles and it's just, just my sound bouncing off of the walls. Yeah. Um, but if you can find something that's like relevant and topical at the moment, that's going to get a reaction. If you can get like one or two kids going, then, then others will start to warm up and get more comfortable. But it's a, I like to say it's like a dog and pony show. And it's just like entertaining them until they, they jump in, you know? <laughs> I'm thinking about what, what is working well in, in online classes and online teaching right now. And we've all had to adapt and I'm sure plenty of people are doing very good things and things that are very effective and encouraging students to, to connect. I'm wondering is, has anybody seen anything like, what do you think we're going to keep when we're able to, everybody's fully back in school? What from this is working, especially in music? Um, I can tell you in my experience, like 
playing together obviously is not working. You know, but like the best we can do is everybody mute and make sure I can see your pen and your sticks. And your, like it's like not nearly the same. But um, is anybody having any successes? Like things that you think you might keep doing even after um, after we can all go back to normal. I hope. I'm, I'll just say I hope that we talk about music better after this. I think part of the reason this whole copyright issue is even there is people need lots of examples because it's very it's just hard to talk about music like it is really hard it's easy to go like oh did you like that did you not like that but even at an advanced level talking about music is really tough you know we can analyze chords all day and you can sit there and say you know what this is what that is what that is but then you're left with like okay now so what you know one of my theory teachers used to always say that he would say like great great here's the what now we need to talk about the so what and you never I, get to that. That's, I had what, that's the best part. I had a teacher that brought up this great quote by Martin Mola, and it's uh, talking about music is like dancing about architecture. It's a very right. stupid thing to want to do. Oh, he's so <laughs> wrong. It's like, so, no, it's I mean, wrong. like, I think maybe like the, the sort of catch there is like at least the way that we currently do it. it it's hard to talk about in, in ways that are actually meaningful sometimes. It, it's hard, but it's so good when you do, like when somebody has something really great to say about a piece, you know, yeah. but it's hard. I mean, yeah, I mean, I'm probably count on two hands the like, you know, times I've heard really really good stuff uh who's who's in the chat there is it chris yeah um yeah. you know i i think for me uh talking about music is is important i think one of the things about zoom is because we're not in the same room there's a, a vulnerability that changes and you know their house is normally their their safe place for for a lot of the kids and they're in the battle zone when they're in in the school um so then when when they're getting exposed even something as simple as sharing a thought you know is they can feel very exposed doing that so i i think finding ways for students to feel comfortable talking with each other about anything i think goes a really long way but for me something i'd like to keep is you know kids are turning in recordings and they're they're recording themselves and just they're having to learn really quickly how to do that well and then the idea of going back and like that recording didn't go well you should probably do it again because i only get one chance to listen to it so they you know there's not multiple tries tries in front of me they really got to do that you know on their own in their own time and i'm i'm hoping that's something that can continue in the idea of just you know basic music production they're they're starting to learn that and get better at that so i like to to see that continue and the creativity that goes along with that too yeah absolutely that's so important and i, I think so many students are having to do this for the first time and maybe submitting recordings before a lesson for the first time and the kind of preparation that's different that goes into that that is super super valuable i'll keep doing that for sure um and one other thing i've experienced is like you know say in studio class we're doing some score study we're looking at some mozart and it's so easy to just share the screen and like here's here's the score here's the part here's the recording we're gonna listen to, like how long do you think this note should be when do we muffle here and it's like it's easier than it would be if we we're all in the same room, like sharing a couple copies of the score, you know, so things like that, like integrating technologies is great. And I'll, I'll keep doing that in any way that I can. Um, so I've had a lot of success with that. What about you all? Anything, anything else? Uh, yeah, I find like the whole, I would continue like answering your question. Um, 
with uh you know how i record my lesson so i'll, I'll do a lesson and uh this is the assignment for the end of the week you have to record such and such stand tune or whatever from marching band and i will record okay let me start recording the class i'm upload it later you can watch back the playback recording just copy me this way you have to learn the assignment i will definitely continue doing that um like recording like warm up a sequence warm up level one and then on and on your own, whenever you practice and you're like, well, Mr. Mujica tells me to practice all the time. I don't know what to do. He tells me 15 minutes a day goes a long way. What do I do? We'll play along with the 15 minute lesson recording that it's in our Google classroom. And I would definitely continue to do that. Just putting up, putting out my own content uh, so they can use as resource to practice at home or at their leisure. Right. I'm curious if you guys had any like successful Zoom performances because uh the group here did a collaboration with the University of Toronto Percussion Ensemble, which is something that you wouldn't really be able to do without, you know, Zoom. So we actually played using like a timer and a website, a score by a composer named David Bethel. And we were able to kind of do a lot of improvisation, but, you know, following a score of a uh, performance. And we were able to record it, did a couple takes, you know, and premiere it in kind of a cool way. And I'm just curious if you guys have any other experiences kind of like that. Uh, similar, we, uh, Pius Chang wrote two pieces, one called Synced and Unsynced, and they were both really short little things. Unsynced was a little longer, but sort of like, uh, and we also did Dai Fukijuro's piece called, um, uh, what was it called? Oh my gosh, y'all can look it up for sure. But it was for Zoom setting and for like one person's conducting in a window and the, the parts are such that it doesn't have to be like perfectly rhythmically tight, sort of like our Wilcoxon, like it doesn't have to be like that. But um, yeah, I thought they really... They both worked really well, and of course, one you know you really got to be tight and listen to a click. But yeah, yeah, Jade, nothing, nothing that creative, frankly. I, I, I did a really ridiculous um, uh, collaborative thing with the fellow composers there and fellow faculty there, and it was real detailed. Like Casey writes measure one, Pius writes measure three, Erico writes measure two, Mike and Mark delete something from. Casey and Pius's measure, like real, real, real detailed and prescriptive. And um, although the result wasn't something we ended up getting to use, we got to show the whole process and and all of that. And actually a few people have said, we want to do this piece. Can you send us the instructions and all of that? So I, I want to play with something like that again. But uh, yeah, any, anyone else? I, I was going to say, just to interject, that reminds me so much of uh, Lou Harris and John Cage double music, where Lou Harrison wrote two parts, John Cage wrote two parts, with instructions yeah. on the the form of the piece, but they they wrote their parts uncollaboratively, so to speak, and then stuck them together. But anyone else Zoom performances? It's I haven't done of... anything collaborating with other people through Zoom, but I've done live performance through Zoom and shared pre-recorded video through Zoom. Um, and the the scary thing about performing live through Zoom is just feeling like you can't control how the audio is going to come out and Actually, this happened in a, a forum at FA a couple of weeks ago. A, a student starts playing, not a percussion student, a brass player started playing, and 
no audio was coming out. Like I think he'd somehow turned off his mic right before he started playing or it, like it just went wrong and everybody's waving and like yelling at him like, hey, stop, man, you gotta, you gotta adjust your mic. And like he played the entire piece and didn't look at the screen once, um, which I understand I wouldn't be either. And then I was like, hey, sorry, but you gotta do the whole thing again. Um, so that's a bummer, you know, if, if just, just being worried that I don't know if I can control this audio and what if it doesn't come out? What if, even what if I'm sharing this video and the audio and video are slightly out of sync? Like that's terrifying. Um, but that's been my experience so far. Everything I've done has gone well, mm -hmm. but it's one of these. Yeah. Right. Keep your Crossing my fingers. Cross your fingers. <laughs> Every time. Yeah. 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 Let me, let me get a sound effect there for you, Carly. That, that fit actually. I mean, kinda. So yeah, I don't. I don't have any of these labeled yet. So I'm kind of just shooting in the dark. Yeah, I think the. I think the the cross your fingers thing. It's just anything involving technology. Like one day you might be recording a podcast episode with a Pulitzer Prize winner and then lose the whole episode, which is a thing that happened. That did uh, happen. Uh, yeah, here, I got a sound effect for that, Ben. That's the sound of Jennifer Higdon's ad percussion episode right there. <laughs> <laughs> we have a good 10 minutes up there. Go oh, watch 10 minutes. We got like a question. She so, was cool about it, by the way. She was just like, Yeah, oh, she was totally a sweetheart oh, about it. That's unfortunate. I'm sorry that happened. It's okay. She was like so, so nice. She could she couldn't have been sweeter about it. So to to get back to the I, I don't I don't know if this is actually a thing. The MOOCs, I'm gonna say MOOCs. Uh, I think that sound that sounds like a thing people probably say. To get back to the MOOCs for a second, these massive online open courses. So what we've been talking about is sort of like university or public school Zoom teaching online, which is similar, but not exactly the same as MOOCs, obviously. But I just like had a sort of maybe closing thought on this. Um, and so Elon Musk has said many controversial and maybe stupid things uh, in the past several years. But one of the things that Elon Musk recently said that broke headlines was, College is basically for fun and not for learning, uh, which is ironic because many jobs at SpaceX have a college degree as a requirement. Um, and I've also heard a lot of tech companies, I think Apple was one of the ones that said this, is kind of college isn't, it's not really all that relevant. We're more interested in, in what you can do. So if you've programmed a bunch of stuff and have a portfolio of all this genius stuff that you've programmed, that's probably pretty valuable at, at when you're applying for a job at Apple, um, which I'm sure a degree from Stanford would be valuable as well. But it's interesting that the weight that we place on these things. And it got me thinking, like, what is the role of these MOOCs in our education? Um, and I think it's very easy for all of us to look at, like, the masterclass, Gordon Ramsay classes and say, well, it's just sort of enrichment for adults that are maybe a little more on the intellectual side, something like that. But can it actually serve as a valid educational credential and it actually made me think of several podcast episodes ago when Casey and Ksenia were getting into it about, about studying music. And uh, Ksenia, I think, brought up the which has never happened before, but uh, Ksenia brought up the point, I think it was, of do you need a college degree to win an orchestra job? It was Carly. And, uh, Carly, maybe it was. Uh, and obviously, technically, the answer is no. You don't, you don't need to go to Juilliard to win a college job, but at the same rate, it's almost a necessary credential. Uh, and it's funny because like conservatories are actually sort of, they're not credentialed as universities. So 
that's a weird distinction there. But so is it necessary to go to college to win an orchestra job? Could you just privately study with Chris Lamb and practice a whole lot and win an orchestra job? So it got me thinking with these MOOCs, like maybe actually there's some sort of path there for you take your music theory classes and things, music history to understand how music works as a whole, uh, but you don't have to spend hours studying for music theory exams, something like that. And you can focus on your practicing. I don't know, just spitballing here, 50 years in the future, maybe that's something we'll see. But I do think the, the idea of a university as a research institution uh, cannot be uh, spoiled. And we're talking here about programs that only teach but don't actually do research, which in the arts or sciences, I think is, is an important thing. Like biology isn't simply about studying biology, it's about doing experiments and finding out new things about biology. So I don't know, that was my take, but does anyone have a thought on what is the role of MOOCs in education in you know, the coming decade, let's say? I mean, it seems like a good thing overall. One of the things they said in this article is that this whole thing, um, let me see if I can find the right quote here. Um, just a moment, just a moment. So, okay, yeah, here's, here's one quote. For some educational stakeholders, organizations like Coursera, which is for-profit funded by venture capitalists and doesn't classify itself as an institution of higher learning, represent a threat to higher education, as we currently know. Yeah, I, I kind of already said that. MOOCs are particularly controversial when they are offered for credit in the setting of a university degree program. Holding up MOOCs as a fast, cheap alternative to traditional college education, which for most American students comes with a heavy price tag, could result in a two-tiered class system in which rich students get face time and poor students get screen time. I think there's that, but I definitely agree like college is too expensive. It's like way too expensive. And speaking of the capitalist interest in this, I think it's really weird that there is a copyright issue with say the, the thing they mentioned is iTunes lists at all. Like why is that even an issue? So you don't stream the track to a thousand people you do what I do in percussion lit. You say, hey, here are the MP3s you'll need to get for this class. You need to buy them. You know, they're a dollar each max. So you have a playlist of so many, or by the way, they're all free on Naxos in our library. You can do it that way. You can buy them. You can pay for them via YouTube, your YouTube uh, music subscription through your Spotify subscription. So everyone's getting compensated. If all 6,000 students in the class paid for those tracks, well, yeah, iTunes is getting the revenue and the artists are getting their trickle-down revenue as they should. So it's really weird to me that they don't just do that. Like, why are they saying, no, we want to hold, like, we want it to go through us. And as you know, the more middlemen you put in between the artist and the person listening, the less money the person who created it is getting and probably the more money the person uh, um, listening is paying. So like, it's like, wait, no, let's not add another middleman. Just like let them buy the iTunes as required course material. But I get the feeling they're also trying to do it with textbooks. I, well, I read I that somewhere too. They're also it, trying to hoard the textbooks. So the students will just pay for the course and the people creating the course will have the rights to the text and all the materials used. So like they'll make deals with those people and thus they'll get the most uh, Casey, I think I think to that end, the, the idea is that they want a self-contained course, which I can understand. Uh, and I think that the idea of having like a Spotify or Apple Music plugin, where as long as you have that service, when you get to this musical example, you press play and it will play it, is a good idea. I just don't know 
financially for a company like Spotify, how much revenue there is in worrying about a class trying to teach contemporary music. So I, I think they might already have an API for that. I, I don't, I don't know, but that's, that is an interesting point of like the self-contained course. I think that is you're, valuable and shouldn't be. You're naive, way. Ben. You're too nice. You're too nice. These people are meaner than that. I think you might be right. I don't know. I, I was just thinking, you know, I, I wonder if some of this is, you know, a response, of course, because the, the college is, is so expensive, even a, a basic state, you know, uh, college or university, but it's also maybe that anonymity of these huge 101 lecture courses where you don't feel like you're getting uh, attention um, or the fact that, you know, students, they, you know, they leave high school, they had a hard time in high school, maybe they weren't ready for college. And then like down the road, they, they want to kind of dive in and, and learn some things or try some things that I, I think there's definitely a, a huge response there. And I, I think that the uh, copyright issue is, it's complicated, even in our classrooms. I mean, how many times do we hear about, especially in the music world, copyright, you know, is it every convention I've ever been to, there's been sessions on, on copyright, and rightfully so, it's, it's complicated, we want to make sure people are, you know, be able to make a living on, on their work. But um, at the end of the day, I think when it, it comes to learning, I, I think one thing I struggle with is when I've got 250 some kids and I, I want to get material to them, you know, there's an understanding I can photocopy some parts so we can play the piece and I don't have to buy it four times. Um, you know, I think there, there has to be some understanding that, that comes with that. And maybe there, there should be some kind of, you know, if there's a, a Spotify or something like that, there needs to be like a, a you're using this for a college course and it's, it's a little extra, but then there's an understanding it's going to be shared with a, a bunch of people. Yeah, and that would certainly work. And, and I mean, the wonderful thing is, okay, hey, tell your kids to go listen to the tracks on Spotify. If they're subscribers, well, they're paying for it. If they're not subscribers, well, then they're the artists are getting paid through the ad revenue or whatever. So it's like, well, that's the that's the right way it's done, and that's the way that already works. And I'm glad you 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 spoke up, Chris, because you you reminded me to finish my thought uh, from before, and that was like, yeah, college is way too expensive, and the way to fix it is not to like okay, let's make a really cheap course and get everyone, like, it's a great alternative to college being way too expensive. But like, college is way too expensive. That's the problem. Like, wait, let's fix this, like, where it's really bad. Like, yeah, I, I mean, it's it's just, there's other places it needs to be fixed. It's not just like, let's change the modality for the students and it might not be as good. Like, well, the students shouldn't have to pay for this. No, like, they need to fix what's wrong. Yeah, I mean, and we if I'm afraid to even say this, because I'm sure we could go on for three more hours about this if I do. But I think in short, for universities, it's it's basically the equivalent of high school or you know public schools talking about charter schools. It's a huge solution slash problem that you're trying to, you know, work out. And I think Casey's right, like college is just way too freaking expensive. And this is maybe a way for us to just sort of jump ship on the entire university system, let the ship sink and try and do a new thing, maybe at certain expenses. Well, I've said it for years and I mean, I, I love my students. I don't want my students not to be here and I certainly don't want to lose my job because there aren't students, but I mean, it really does seem like for this to change, we need a, a, a anti-college generation or two. Like they have to go like, I'm not paying for this. There's no way. Like it can't be this expensive. So students, so universities are forced to, to fix it. 
And maybe and maybe these courses are one of those fixes. They say like, okay, we're just going to go take these way, way cheaper courses to get educated and we're not going to participate in this $40,000 a year uh, thing anymore. I mean, I don't know about all these moves you know, I'm talking about. I have considered doing one of those master classes. But then again, this is why I uh, listen to y'all's podcast. <laughs> And that's so why I'm charging a, everyone for Are we a MOOC? Is that can we yeah, have status now? I almost <laughs> didn't want to come to class today and then Casey made me practice some rudimental snare drum and then we had to pay for <laughs> and then we had to read. I made more wow. hay practice. <laughs> we, we did have a practice assignment this week, so <laughs> every week now. Every week. <laughs> <laughs> this is just Casey's scam to quit JMU and start an online school. Yeah, I think we can. <laughs> Five years in now, we can make it. You notice, you notice that Wilcox and Ksenia conveniently said that uh, her power went out. Um, yeah, when when we were going to play Wilcoxon. I mean, there is a tropical storm. I know there is another freaking hurricane. It's crazy. My sister's in Louisiana, and this is like the eighth one they've had to prepare for. And we thought we were in the clear here in South Florida, but this one's supposed to turn around and come back i think sunday night i don't know it's a surprise <laughs> uh, y'all be careful yeah yeah thanks yeah. are you guys ready for crumb bingo oh god <laughs> let me try oh, that. That? <laughs> let me try that again <laughs> yeah sure sure that'll work crumb yeah. bingo the first one was perfect the first one. <laughs> um yeah, I'll have, to I'll have to label this little system and figure out my sound effects. Okay, so this is how this works. A, f a few weeks ago, we reported on, uh, I made some samples of Chrome sound effects. I pull Or no, I guess I pulled them all out and played them physically for you. So, but since then, I've made some samples, and this is just stuff that Chrome uses. And you can see on your little Chrome bingo boards, that's right, I made everyone a Chrome bingo card. So we're going to play again. And the instruments are Cratales on timpani head. It's going to be, you know, pitch bending. It's going to be Imbira on bass drum. It's going to be a low bell of some sort. And I use this um, this festival gong, Chinese festival gong. Cymbal on timpani, prayer stones, claves on bass drum, temple bells, bow tam tam, uh, recorder. I called it a damn recorder because I hate playing the recorder. A sistrum and a pitched slide whistle. All slide whistles are pitch, but crumb ask for specific pitches. And first I thought what I would do is play for you all the sounds in their original, uh, you know, just the original samples so we get a sense of what they should sound like. And then the theme for Crumb Bingo today is pitch bending. So let's listen to them in their original form first. Let's see, so this file, here we go, this file is called Crumb Samples Clean. So let me screen share. Optimize for sound. So here they are clean. Hopefully I recognize all of these. That's the Imbira on bass drum. You can't really tell it on bass drum. That's the recorder. That's Clave's on bass drum. That's Cratales on timpani. 
came through clear does anybody want to hear any of those again ben you take games pretty seriously you okay i think i'm good i gotta say i got a recorder gig for you after this <laughs> it's gonna be about as good as your uh your violin playing my violin playing is excellent thank you very much i have a dma <laughs> from the university of miami frost school of music just a minute i can't find you guys why can't i find you all Ben, stop screen? telling people that <laughs> cheapening carly's violin. degree <laughs> devaluing the degree right in front of Carly. Uh, okay, so here it is with effects, and now we're going to start playing bingo. So if you get bingo, you win a prize. And the theme is pitch changes. So all I did was mess with some kind of pitch changing on it. So Do you want that one again? I'm gonna do that one one more time. This is the first one. Okay, and second. And the third. <laughs> this is hard. <laughs> uh, <laughs> fourth i think i got bingo no way already yeah okay what instruments did you have uh so in no particular order recorder correct clave's on bass drum uh correct free space and pitch slide whistle no there was no pitch slide whistle oh yeah so but you okay so i'll tell you what you get to keep you get to keep clave's on bass drum and recorder and of course your free space good guess though Good guess. I think you'll hear the slide whistle as it, as it goes on. Jay's got something. Jay, do you have bingo? I think so. What did do you I, got? Did I hear the Mabira on bass drum? Yep. Yeah. So with the free space, club is on bass drum and recorder. That's bingo. Oh, he's got it already. Okay. Do you have a guess at what the first one was? Or do you think it was the slide whistle also? Uh, I thought it was um, cymbal on timpani. Okay, I'm not going to say yes or no because we don't we don't want to give it away. Okay, Jade got bingo. Jade, you're going for double bingo. Everyone else is still going for bingo. That one's pretty easy in the fifth. That's my favorite one. And six. I think I got bingo. Was that Chris? Yeah. Okay, what do you got? So I I have two free spaces on this one, but I, I heard I'm, I'm guessing it was pitch slide whistle and ambira on bass drum. You definitely got the ambira. No pitch slide whistle <clears throat> oh. yet. Not yet. No pitch slide whistle yet. Yeah. And here's number eight. Nine. 
So that one sounded about the same. Bingo! And that's bingo. all of them. I think I got bingo too. <laughs> okay, yeah, everyone probably got, um, uh, Jorge, you first. Uh, claves on bass drum, damn recorder, free space, and cymbal on timpani. <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah, you got it. Jade, any double bingo? Probably, but I gave up. <laughs> <laughs> You're not taking this seriously? And Carly, yeah, you obviously got it. Yep, that was all of them. So that was your crumb bingo for the day. Wait, can you go back into the file, play them all through sure. and tell us what they all were? You bet. I, I'm honored you want me to do that, actually. <laughs> it's an honor. <laughs> I'm, like, really glad. Yeah, right. sure. So, okay. So, from the beginning, the first one was bowed gong with what's – my doll has this thing called elastic pitch changer where you can kind of just draw the pitch up or down, and it doesn't affect the length very, very much. It has to affect it a little bit, but it's pretty wild how easy it is. So, that's bowed gong. which you all got that didn't sound too different clave is on bass drum just a quick gliss that's the recorder I didn't actually change it I thought oh it sounds goofy enough that's my low singing bowl and that's what I was using as a bell on one of my chrome pieces this one is so cool this is the three temple bells right like the three little singing bowls and i just did that elastic pitch thing and threw it all over the place and it sounds so cool yeah it really hides the impact of them and, and really amplifies the, the pitch that's my gong doing the same thing that's the prayer stones that one's super cool the prayer stones That's the Sistrum, just slowed down a bit. That's Crotale's on timpani. And that's the slide whistle. Cymbal on timpani. And that's it. So, yeah, that's Crumb's little sound world, but tweaked. You know what that, that whole thing reminds me of is, have you guys seen the Mark Applebaum TED Talk? Yeah. And he shows his instrument, the Mouseketeer, and he, he talks about, you know, when you play the piano, he says, like, unless you set it on fire or something, like, it, it has a pretty narrow range of tones that it produces. Then he plays this little made-up instrument, the Mouseketeer, which has all sorts of combs and dials and boings and springs and whatever on it. Uh, and then he hooks that up to a live bank of electronics, and it's like, oh, my God, there's so many sounds. Like, it's just so interesting. <laughs> Uh, and that was like that's sort of the theme of his TED talk. Is is it interesting? But yeah, I don't know if you remember. I did a I did a little report on that that instrument. Um, the uh, what's it called? You you wave it around in Australia. Bullroar. Bullroar. Yeah, I was gonna say bullroar. I was like, no, that's not right. That's the other freaking thing. Um, but yeah, I I took a recording of a weed whacker, and I modified it a little bit so it sounded like a bullroar. And we had Caleb on, and I said, Caleb, do you know that instrument? He's like, oh, yeah, it's a bull roar. And I was like, oh, no, it's a weed whacker. <laughs> I was really proud. 
but yeah, you can you can manipulate stuff so much. Like I guarantee, if you know what you're doing, you can make a singing bowl sound like a snare drum, and and a clarinet sound like uh, I mean, just a weed whacker. You know, anything. Yeah. Hey, well, you all, thanks so much for um, coming on again. And yeah, hope to see you on the next one. We'll try to do the next one with, uh, without such a, a big gap in between. And um, yeah, Jorge, Manny, Jade, Chris, Carly, Ben, and Ksenia, we'll see you next time. We hope the your uh, power's back on and uh, yeah, the hurricane isn't um, hitting you. So cool. All right. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you on 262. Bye. Bye.